We are in uh, 1 Corinthians 13. If you'd open up your Bibles there, please. I am, I'm just going to read it. Uh, it's it's uh, rich and good, and there's nothing to introduce it other than just reading it. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to preach the first seven verses, but I'm going to read all 13, 13 of them. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or, clanging, or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's uh, pray. Father, our souls are uh, made from dust, breathe life by you. And so now we're here again depending on you for life according to your word. And so please teach it to us. Make us to understand as we meditate on it. So give us a focus now. Give us strength according to your word. May your word convict us that we put false ways behind us. And so, God, please enlarge our hearts to run in the way of your commandments. In Christ's name, amen. So chapter 13 is incredible here. I assume you're all familiar with it. You've all heard it many times, and you've probably all heard it at weddings. And yet the context here, if you remember, comes in the middle of a church that's so filled with themselves, so prideful and haughty, uh, that they're just in conflict all over. We've been through it. They're dividing up under teachers. They're rejoicing in sexual sin. They're going to lawsuits against each other. They care more about their rights to eat what they want rather than caring for somebody else. They, um, the wealthy and the well-to-do go ahead in the Lord's Supper and eat and give it drunk, and the poor go without. And then in the gifts, in chapters 12, 13, and 14, they are so proud of what spiritual gifts, what abilities and talents they have, that it's all about them, it's all about drawing attention to themselves, it's all about spiritual one-upmanship, that they do not love each other. And so in chapter 13, this is, this is the height of Paul's argument to heal their divisions. So chapter 13 is like the pinnacle of this book, and it is meant as a rebuke. It's meant for them to look at themselves in the mirror of God's word at an awesome, wondrous, rich definition of love and for them to see, 
we're not that. That's what this chapter is functioning as. It's, it's the Holy Spirit's solution to their pride and division. And so, even though we often hear 1 Corinthians 13 at weddings, and that's fine. I've read it. I love weddings. They're really enjoyable to see this couple loving each other and very excited. But this chapter isn't mainly meant there. Do you know where this chapter is meant for? Divorce court. When a couple can't stand each other anymore. When they've lost love. That's what this chapter is meant for. It's, it's, it's meant when your friendship's dissolving. It's, it's meant for the hard relationships. That's what it's meant for. And so this is good for us, right? Because that's some of your relationships. And it's not meant for you to demand of the other. You know, so if, let's go to divorce court. It's not meant for you to go, see, you're supposed to love me like this. It's meant for you to look at yourself and say, I'm, I'm supposed to love you like this. I'm, I'm supposed to love you like this. So that's what it's for. Now, there's all kinds of songs. As I've been studying this this week, I have song after song running through my head. What is love? What's love got to do with it? All All of these songs are running through my head for you Shine Down fans. There's a a love song there. So I've been listening to these songs. Um, And I bring that up to say, uh, contemporary world has little understanding of what love actually is. And so this is needed. So I, I ask you to give ear to this, to welcome God's spirit to teach you to love, to take care not to use this to evaluate others in your relationships. Now, it is true that you want to be loved. You need to be loved. You want to be loved like this. That's good and right, and we should. But this chapter doesn't first function as a tool for you to get angry at somebody else for their lack of love. It could be a good lament, really a good God-centered sadness over the lack of somebody very important in your life to give you this kind of love. And because that, that's sad, isn't it? When those that God has put in your life that are very close to you, very dear to you, do not love you like this. So this could be a good lament time for you, a good turning to God in real sorrow and grief, going to the reality with him to be loved like this. And then, then going to the reality that this chapter defines the love of God for you. And we'll get to that more. So three things here. Love is everything. Or said negatively as the title of the sermon is, nothing without love. So the first three verses, I want to do that first. Then when I get into the different attributes of love, I want to define love. And he defines it here mainly by what it isn't. So he takes a negative. He defines it in the negative. So we're going to look at that. And then lastly, kind of the eternal enduring reality of love or the beginning of verse uh, 8. Love never ends. So first, nothing without love. Verse 31, 
After, in chapter 12, he goes through all of these gifts. He ends verse 31 with an exhortation, desire the higher gifts. Desire the greater gifts, and he's given these lists of gifts. And desire the higher gifts. By higher, he means those gifts that will be most useful to others in the church. He doesn't mean by higher the gifts that will bring you the most attention or acclaim or the gifts that seem the most awesome and supernatural and powerful and cool. He means the gifts that will help you to get down and gritty with God's people and be helpful to them. So desire that. Desire to be more useful to the body. And then he says, and I'll show you still a more excellent way. And so the issue in Corinth is that there, there is a church, as he says in the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, that, that he thanks God that they have just about every grift. That I, I thank God because uh, he, he has given you every gift in Christ, that you've been enriched in every Christ, that you're not lacking any gift. So this is a church of gifted people, talented people, and yet they don't have love. So Paul is going to show them that even, even though they're very talented, they can do and say great things. They do it all for themselves. And so they are in danger of being absolutely nothing. That's what's going on here. Um, Martin Luther, who I recommend always reading as much as you can. I've told some people before service that there is a website called the Luther Insulter, where Luther had lots of um, uh, insults and so on towards the Pope and his enemies, and they're a hoot. Um, but he, he always is willing to rebuke the church. And here, here's what he says about this chapter. Paul's purpose in this chapter is to silence and humble haughty Christians, particularly teachers and preachers. <laughs> He says, with Christians are great riches of spiritual knowledge, great treasures in the way of spiritual gifts, but there are to be found, listen to this, but there are to be found few indeed who make right use of such gifts and knowledge, who humble themselves to serve others according to the dictates of love. Instead, each seeks his own honor and advantage, desiring, and then I would say, he's saying, desiring to use those gifts and talents to gain preferment and precedent over others. No one takes thought how he may in Christian love serve his fellow men to their profit. Right. And so that's what's going on in this chapter. The purpose of this chapter is to silence and humble haughty Christians because they use these gifts of God given them to help the church instead to um, raise themselves in the eyes of others to give precedent for themselves over others. And, it, and if you don't believe that about yourself, then you just don't know yourself that well. There's nothing I struggle more with in coming up here to preach than fighting the desire to preach in such a way as to get you to prefer me. And so this is the motivation. This is our fallen fleshly motivation. So Paul, in the first three chapters, is showing that we're nothing without love. Love is most important. You can have incredible gifts. You can speak in languages or of angels, but have not, have not love. You're just an irritating noise. You can have prophetic powers. You, you can understand all mysteries, all knowledge. 
and have not love and be nothing. And so Paul is giving you the greatest things about that you could possibly be and do of being a Christian. Verse 3, you could give away everything. You could have faith in God enough to just give away all possessions. You could even be so committed to Jesus that you would die and not just die, but die the most torturous death ever, being burned alive. But if it's not out of love, you gain nothing. So the most excellent gifts, tongues, prophetic powers, knowing all mystery and having all faith to move mountains, the most excellent works, giving away everything, feeding all the poor, dying a terrible death for Christ. But if you have not love, you have nothing. Nothing. Isn't that convicting? Isn't that convicting? We can pack all the shoeboxes in the world and have not love and be nothing, gain nothing, actually doing nothing. So we are nothing without love. Said positively then, love is the most important thing. It's the essential thing. There is no more important reality in your and my life than to love. Than to love. So you can have the greatest gifts in the world, do the greatest things in the world, but not do them from a heart of love and do nothing. Do nothing. You can be getting the greatest education, the greatest homeschooling education, have a head that's more filled with knowledge and sharp and quick, but if you don't use it for love, you've, you've gained nothing. You can be the most talented craftsman or whatever, and if it's not done in love, you've gone, gained nothing. We have to get this through our head that there's nothing that matters as much as love. We have to define love. We're going to do that next. We have to start there. The Christian ethic, the, the central reality of, of godly, biblical, true religion, Christianity, is love. That's it. And so Pine Grove, we're a talented bunch. There's lots of gifts. We have a lot of people serving. But are we doing them in love? So the most important defining reality about each member at our church isn't the gifts you bring to the table. It isn't the amount of money you give. It isn't that you have all of your doctrinal I's dotted and your doctrinal T's crossed. It isn't that you dress nice. It isn't that you're schooling your kids right. It isn't that you're volunteering or this or that. It's, it's but do you love? Do you love? And so what is love? Now one of the preacher tricks with 1 Corinthians 13, is to ask you to insert your name into this definition of love in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. Substitute your name for love. How many of you have seen that before? Preachers have these tricks. So, Jeremy is patient. Jeremy is kind. Jeremy does not envy or boast. And then the, the trick is, then, as you put your name in there, you realize... I'm a pathetic worm. And that's true. And you are too. And I'm a night crawler and you're just one of those little red deals. 
And you can decide if that makes me better or worse. But I don't want to play that preacher's trick. I want you to start by substituting Christ's name there. Because Jesus is patient. Rude. And Jesus doesn't envy or boast. He's not arrogant or rude. The Lord Jesus does not insist on his own way. He, you'll never find him irritable or resentful towards you. The Lord doesn't rejoice at your failings. He did, you, know, you know how people do that, right? We'll, we'll get there in a minute. But he rejoices in truth. He rejoices when you are succeeding, are doing what is right. Christ bears all things and he believes all things and he hopes all things. He endures all things for your sake. Christ will never fail. I want to define all of these words, but I want you to start there. This chapter is meant to drive you to Christ and his love because of your failing. That's a good use of the law. Dennis prayed that I would preach the law and the gospel. One great purpose of God's law, his holy commands, is for you to see how far short you fall of them so that you can be driven day in, day out, moment by moment to Jesus. That's what it's for because this is what Jesus' love is like. And you and I often lack the faith to believe it because he's irritated with me. He's got to be sick of me. He's got to be being close to being done with me. I, I, I hear this not inconsistently from people in our church. I've done this over and over and over again. He's got to be getting close to be done with me. So as you are convicted, as we go through these, it's meant to drive you to Christ and his love. Now, you'll notice, hopefully you've noticed, that there's a lot of negatives in here. Love isn't. There's a few positives and more negatives. Why is that? Why do we need that? This is something our world refuses to do. Our world doesn't like to use the word no. Our world defines love as only affirmation. Only positive. Why, why so much no here? Why so much isn't? Because our flesh is so slippery. Because if you just get all the positives without all the negatives, you'll just define love in a way that just is gratifying according to your flesh. But negatives nail you down. Negatives don't leave you any room to manipulate what God is saying here to serve your flesh. Because God knows you, and God loves you, and God won't flatter you. God's not going to lie to you. And so the negatives really help pin you down. Because you'll want to squirm off the hook a little bit. You, you'll you'll want to take this text, and if it was just positive, it just said love is patient and love is kind. It doesn't give you the negatives of those you'd be able to use this in a way that puffs you up. So let's go through it. Love is patient. That is, it endures and bears the sins of others. It doesn't give in to quick anger. Prideful people can't bear being wronged. They're not patient. They can only judge and condemn and get quickly angry. But patient love gives it another go. It looks to the patience of God in our sin. Love is patient, closed upon by another. 
Love is patient. Love is kind. It's a pleasant person who's kind is pleasant to deal with. They're thoughtful and tender. They're considerate. Love is not envious. Envy is to experience a negative emotion, a anger, or a displeasure at the success and prosperity of another. Love doesn't envy. Love doesn't look at somebody who has more than you in whatever area, more understanding, more responsibility, more praise, more material gain, and hope for their demise. Those who are proud can't see somebody else to be given honor or possessions. They may say the right thing, oh, good for you, and then inwardly they're seething. Kids do this. Why does she get? Love doesn't do that. Love rejoices at the good of others. Doesn't boast. It doesn't exalt oneself. Doesn't push to the front. It, does, it, it doesn't do whatever you can do to get more for self. He will not let his own lips praise himself. He's content with what God has given. He doesn't need to draw attention to himself. He doesn't always need to one-up the story that's told before his story or her story. Love is not puffed up or arrogant. Peacocks fluff out their feathers. They swell up with their own goodness and look down on others. Christian love isn't like a peacock. It's like a golden retriever. It's always looking to do good for the other and not get for itself. It's not about itself. It isn't rude. It doesn't behave unseemly. Rude people always see themselves as right. And when you, a rude person isn't given what they think they're due or, or what will meet their expectations, they fume and they complain and they grumble and they, and they act unseemly. It's a qualification for an elder. Like, not be a rude man. Lots of this going around, isn't there? A lot of rudeness. Doesn't insist on its own way. Now look at verse 3. He says, if you do all these great things but don't have love, you gain nothing. So Paul is here encouraging a motivation for gain. But it's a godly gain. It's a gain that comes from God's reward, not from you manipulating things to get what you want. That is, you can use these gifts and do Christian service in a way just to get good for you. It's the devotion to the good of others, not, not to yourself. Love is then not ir- irritable, easily provoked. Prideful people, vain people cannot tolerate much of any inconvenience. It's always about their convenience. It's always about their peace. It's always about their quiet. They can't rise above insults or jabs. Again, watch your kids. 
They cannot tolerate one of their siblings hurting them or saying something to them or taking something. They're immediately 100% all in irritated. But a fool shows his anger at once. Proverbs 12, 16, while the prudent ignores an insult. Proverbs 19, 11, it is a glory to overlook an offense. I found this one the most convicting. Love is not resentful. The Greek there is account evil. Accounting, it's an accounting term. It's a spreadsheet term. It's a keeping a list term. It's piling up a, a record of the wrongs of others. It's a specific, you're, you're a suspicious person. You're putting the worst spin. You're refusing to think the best. You're, you're, you, this kind of person lets your mind gnaw on what somebody else has said as you mutter on what you wish you would have said. Verse 5. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, or it rejoices not in iniquity. There are two thoughts to what this means. It could just mean kind of the more initial or, or the the understanding that you would first come to is like, you see something that's wrong out there and you don't rejoice in the wrong. You see it as evil and you won't rejoice in it. That's true, but I don't think that's the main thing. I think it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It's like it doesn't rejoice at somebody else's downfall. It doesn't rejoice at somebody else's failure. It's related here to envy and resentment. You don't rejoice when somebody else has been caught doing something bad and is disgraced. It doesn't, of course we don't celebrate sin. It won't approve of sin. But it it doesn't rejoice in the sin of somebody else because that's what envious people do. They, They hope somebody else fails. An insecure person hopes that somebody else fails and rejoices when they fail because then they feel like they can look better Families do this and they compete against families. Moms are tempted to this in their kids. They want their kids to be successful and seen as successful because their worth is in that. That's okay. But they kind of sometimes secretly hope that somebody else's kids do something bad because then it you know, can make them look a little better in their parenting. Dads can do this too. We can all do this. But it rejoices in the truth. You love to see others walking in truth. The Apostle John said, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. Rejoice when you see others succeeding in the Lord, growing in the Lord. You don't separate love and truth. It's something our world does, doesn't it? Yet you feel like you have to pick between, should I be loving here? Should I be gracious here? Should I be truthful here? That's how we use the term grace. Should I give grace? I hate that way of using that term. It is a total misunderstanding of grace. To give grace is not to withhold the truth. And so, so if you're being loving, then you're not being truthful. And if you're being truthful, then you're not being loving. You have to pick. But no, these are friends. Truth and love are friends. They're partners for joy. Look at that. It rejoices with the truth. Love and truth, when they're together, bring joy. They rejoice in the truth. 
And so those who stand for truth aren't necessarily unloving. They can be. And those who are loving aren't necessarily doctrinal compromisers, although they might be. As you stand for truth, you do so out of genuine affection and good for the other. Your heart is tender as you have a spine of steel. We need both. We need men and women of courage that proceeds from a heart of genuine affection for others and desire for their good in the Lord. And then love bears all things. It's easy to please. Now, this is interesting here. Bears all things. One of the mistakes we can make as Christians is to deny the reality of the evil that's going on. But if you're bearing the evil that's happening against you or against those you love, you're admitting that it's evil. But you're willing to bear with it. You're willing to go the long haul. But no one can do right in the eyes of a prideful man. But bearing all things doesn't expose somebody else's weakness to humiliate them. It bears with them. It covers them over. Love covers over the multitude of sins. I think about this in relation to God. Our God isn't the kind of holy God who transcends us, who's so pure that he won't be seen with us. But God is a God of love who, whose love bears our wickedness, our impurity, our defilements. He comes down into the muck. And of course, we see this in Christ. Christ's love bore our sin. So it doesn't deny the sin. It doesn't view the world through rose-colored glasses. It just puts up with a lot. Love is forbearing. Love believes all things. It's not a gullibility here. There is discernment needed. There is a need for shrewdness. But it's somebody with a trustful attitude towards others. It's somebody who is willing to see the best in others until proven otherwise. But many, out of self-protection, refuse to trust others and are always hunting for what they did wrong. You're always being a sleuth trying to investigate, finding the wrong, critical. Love hopes all things. It doesn't give up. Now, we do have to have a balance here. There are situations in Scripture where the relationship needs to be severed because of the sin of the other. There are permissions for divorce, for instance. But that's after years of hoping all things, hoping for the best. And I've seen this in, in, in Christians who are left with nothing to do but divorce because of the ongoing, repeated sin of another that has utterly destructed the marriage, but they still have a hope. That's godly. No one we know is too far from God's grace to redeem. This is the Apostle Paul, a murderer of Christians. Love hopes all things. You sincerely want the best for the other because you have faith in God's power and mercy. Love endures all things. It doesn't approve of sin. It doesn't wink or flatter at it. It admits the sin is a sin. The evil is an evil. When we say endures all things, this doesn't mean a parent is off the hook at disciplining their child's sin. But as far as personal sin against yourself, 
We turn the other cheek, the insults, the jabs, the unmet expectations. We have confidence in God that allows you to be a better person to God's glory and endure the sin of another against you. Now, all of those things are true, right? We do, again, as I want to say, be careful here. Let me say it like this. Our Christian ethic typically just wants to define love as nice. I think this is one of the major reasons many people were disgusted with our current president, Trump, because he's not nice. But was Jesus loving when he called the Pharisees their face a brood of vipers? Is that loving? Or when he, he said to them, you keep teaching like that, you're going to just make them twice the sons of hell that you are. Is that loving? Or is it loving of you to rebuke your friend's sin? Or is it loving of you that you need to remove yourself from an utterly toxic relationship? Can those things be done in love? Of course. And so love is as defined here, but we need to bring it to a full biblical... Let me... Let me do something pastorally. This past month, on a couple of occasions, a former classmate of mine, who when we were in high school together, I didn't run in his circles. He was, um, we called them goths back then. I don't know if that's allowed to say anymore. He dressed in black and painted his eyes black and his fingernails black, and he was disturbed. Um, he was involved in Satanist things and I wasn't. I didn't know him. I bumped into him at a pastor's conference about 10 years ago, and he had become a Christian and was involved in a local church right next to me where I was at that time, and he was being mentored into uh, being a pastor, and he went to seminary, and about a year and a half ago-ish, he was called to his first church, and that church is eating him alive. And we've been talking, and uh, he's taking it personally. It's my preaching. That's what People always say they know how to get a pastor because they just go right to his preaching. When people want to leave the church, typically they'll say to the pastor, your sermons just aren't connecting with me. And I learned after five years of that, that's bull. It's true. Of course, I know my sermons don't always connect with you. But that's what somebody says when they want to make their leaving look righteous when they're doing something very unloving. And that's what people are telling him, and he's believing it. And so what I'm trying to convince him is, Jeremy, they just don't love you. That's what I had to, I'm sorry, I'm talking to myself. Jeremy, they just don't love you. And so I'm trying to convince them. The reality is, look at 1 Corinthians. They don't love you. They're not loving towards you. So let me just say, in this letter, do you know how the least loved person is in the church of Corinth? Paul. In chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says that that they're reviling him. He's reviling to them. He's reviling. They have a visceral reaction of negative against their pastor. And so if I can love you, you know what I want from you? I want to be loved by you. I'm not saying that because I feel unloved here as a pastor. But there's nothing that a pastor wants more from his people than relational love. And by that, I typically mean loyalty and care. I, want critici- I don't want criticism. I do need criticism. So please don't, don't hear me say, I just want to be flattered by you and you tell me how great I am. I know that. 
Um, this is the greatest sermon I've preached to date. I do want criticism where to do. It's helpful, even though I don't want it. It's needed. But a lot of pastors in their churches face people who don't love them. They speak maliciously about them behind their back. They abandon them with great disloyalty. They won't support or speak up for them and others. They won't give them their heart's affection, but they give it to all kinds of people on podcasts and the internet. And so pastors want to know their people have their back, even when they criticize them. If, if, if I am convinced or a pastor is convinced that you have their good at heart and that you got their back and that you'll stand up for them, when you bring criticism, they'll be glad to accept it. I have told people when they're giving me criticism that I am not listening to it. And I mean that sinfully. I, I can't listen to it because you have never done anything for me that communicated any love to me ever. How can I listen to you? So Again, I'm not saying this because I feel unloved here. It's just the opposite. I, I have received incredible love at this church. I, my family and I feel well loved. But because I've been involved with that other guy, I felt it was necessary to say this here. Uh, pastors want to be loved. Pastors are people too. But I wanted to say that to transition it, and don't you just want that? Don't you just want this? This is what is emotionally involved for me this week. I, you just, I know you just want this. In your marriage, this is what you want. This is why you signed up for it, because this is what you wanted. You wanted somebody that you could live the rest of your life with, who was patient with you and your failings, who was kind to you, who wasn't easily irritated at all of your ways that you stink. It wasn't always about getting their own way, that isn't rude, that cares for you, believes in you, hopes in you, endures all things for you. That doesn't, that's what you want. That's what you want in your friendships. That's what you want in the members of this church. This is what you want from your government leaders. This is what we want. This is it. And so, love never ends. This is describing God's love. David Bailey, a pastor in Dayton, Ohio, has a series of sermons on this chapter. And in the first of his sermons on this chapter, he ended his sermon by pointing out God's love. And so I'm going to take his cue and do this. Eternal love, and love that never ends, is true because God is eternal and God is love. He's not like loving. He's loving. He's love. Sometimes in the Bible, there are adjectives used to describe God. God is just. God is holy. When we read God is love, it's not like that. Sometimes in Scripture, um, God is described as something by likening him unto something else. God is a refuge. God is a place of security. That's not, when we say God is love, that's not like that. Sometimes in the Bible, we have God is my. It's qualified by the word my. God is my helper. God is my salvation. When we read God is love, it's not like that. God, when the Bible says God is love, it's saying something very different. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, it says God is love. It's one of only two times in the Bible where something that's a noun 
something that's a thing in of itself, is used to describe the very center nature of who God is. There's two of them. God is love is one. Do you know the other one? Let's see if we got any Bible trivia people out here. No? God is light. So when we read God is love, we're reading something that is who God is in all that he is. Okay, I don't know how to, I wish I, I tried to think a long time of a good, like, uh, analogy or illustration of this. And I don't know how to do it. It'd be like, when you think of the Chicago Bulls for your sports run, who do you think of immediately? Michael Jordan. Because Jordan is the Bulls and the Bulls are Jordan. They're so, when you think of America, what do you think of? Freedom. That, that's the very essence, the very core of our country. To think of God as love is to think of who God is. Everything else that God is, all of his other attributes, every one of them is this. They, love is everything that he is. And so wherever we are with God, whenever we draw near to God, we're drawing near to him who is this thing. And the one thing then that we know about how God relates to us is this. It's this kind of love. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is doing. We know that all, all the negative things in these passages about us are true. We are impatient. We are often unkind. We are all about ourselves. We want to... We, we, we hate it when others succeed. We both, we're arrogant, we're rude, we insist on our own way, we are irritable. And yet, the love of God in Christ has welcomed us as his children. In Ezekiel 16, I'm indebted to David Bailey for this. I, I wouldn't have thought of this text, but I think it's so, it describes a baby that's unloved. A baby born and it's just left in its afterbirth. It's a very graphic description of Ezekiel 16. It's just left full of all of the, if you've ever been there, it's not pretty. When my first child was born, I went, ugh. Mandy went, oh. I went, ugh. I mean, I was overcome with, it was beautiful, but it's not clean. And it's describing us like that, as, a, as an unloved baby left in its afterbirth, blood, and ugh. It's just left like that. And then God comes and takes him or her and cleans him or her up and nurtures and fathers the baby and watches her grow into this beautiful, loved person. This is God's love for us. He clothes us in the finest clothing. He makes us beautiful. He gives us everything. He came to us. He took our filth. He took our sin. He took our filthy, immoral lives like rags and put them on his son. And he took his son's perfect, white, unstained, beautiful clothing and clothed us in it. He loves us. And that love will never end. It is the love that he has set on us. Okay? He didn't love you because you were lovable. His love for you isn't dependent on your loveliness. It's dependent on 
his love for you. Why does he love you? Because he loves you. His love endures. This is the greatest fear we have as Christians, that he'll cut us off from his love. That we'll become one day too unlovely for him. Too sinful, too vile. You are, and he has chosen to set his eternal love on you. His love endures forever. The steadfast love of the Lord endures until you've done too much. The steadfast love of the Lord endures until you've done that one thing one more time. This is what we think. This is what you think. Now, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Why? Because it's his love given to you. Because this is who he is. Will he cease to be himself? So the only way to live in this kind of love, the only way to improve at being this kind of love is to go to him who is this. So come to him. Meditate on him. Worship him. Enjoy him. Put in the time and effort to get to know him who is love more so that you can be more like it. Come to him who is patient, who is kind, who doesn't envy or boast, who isn't arrogant, who isn't always insisting on his own way, who is never irritable or resentful, who doesn't rejoice at your failures, but rejoices in growing you to become more like a son, whose love does bear all your junk and believes all this junk and hopes in all things where you endures all things. Come to him, receive that love, and then you'll grow in it. And then you'll grow in it. So the way to be more loving is to know the one who is this. To open up and receive it more and more and more. Let's pray. Father, please do grant us the faith to believe this kind of love is ours from you as grace. Not earned not deserved, not qualified for, not needing to be manipulated into getting it, but given freely as a gift from you in your Son forever. And so God, give us faith to believe this. Give us open hearts to receive it, to bank on it, that your love does endure forever. And then God, please help us to be more loving to, to embody these qualities more and more, to want it, to desire it, to confess it when we fail. And so God, help us to love each other here. But it's all in Jesus' name. Amen. The charge is this. Um, I might have two of them. I just thought of one. The first is consider memorizing this chapter. I think it's a good chapter to memorize. Maybe some of you have it memorized. And so I was thinking, kids... I don't know what age that includes. I didn't think through that. Um, But if you memorize this and you call me and read it, or not read it, and and recite it, don't do that. (laughs) Or if you stop by the office or you send a video before next Sunday, so next Sunday is off limits, so by Saturday at 8 (laughs) p.m., I'm making this up as I go along. I'll have a treat for you if you memorize it and you can recite it for me. The second one is, 
I want you to know the love of God. There's nothing better for you than to just meditate on God. And so the Sabbath is given you for that. And so the charge is to consider what you can do today on the Sabbath to know the love of God more. What can you do? And I bet it doesn't include running home and watching football all day. Just, just an idea. I don't know. I could be wrong on that. All right. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Have a great week in the Lord. I love you.